0: Hello and welcome to AIR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about Russian energy. We will go through particular areas of this energy, gas, oil, nuclear, renewables. And I'm interested in the development, what's happening with Russian energy, especially during unpleasant events started in 2022. My expert today is Tatiana Mitova. Hello Tatiana. Hello, Martin. Dr. Tatiana Mitrova is a research fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy, School of Public and International Affairs, Columbia. She has over 25 years of experience in dealing with Russian and global energy markets. She was executive director of the Energy Center of the Moscow School of Management, Skolkovo, and also head of research in the oil and gas department in the Energy Research Institute of the Russian Academy of Sciences. And by the way, she published over 200 publications. So you can Google her name and her research papers, journal articles, and also some books. So Tatiana, let's start with the first uh, area and that's nuclear. How successful was Russia or Rosaton before 2022 in nuclear energy? I mean domestically and internationally. What nuclear energy meant for Russia before the invasion?
1: So, first of all, Martin, thank you for the invitation. Uh, and It's really my pleasure to be here. I'll try to address the nuclear questions, uh, though it's not my core area of focus. Uh, But Generally, uh, I was always responsible for the energy balance and energy balance in Russia. Uh, I mean, nuclear is a very important part of that. Uh, nuclear has always been like a flagship project, both for the Soviet Union and for the Russian Federation. Uh, Rosatom, Rosatom, uh, which is uh, controlling the whole cycle uh, of the nuclear uh, energy. And not only energy, as you obviously can understand. Uh, it is uh, very uh, closely related to the presidential administration. So it has enormous lobbying potential. It has huge political power in addition to the economic power. Uh, just for your understanding, it is controlling more than 300 mono cities. Can you imagine a city which is all focused on nuclear energy, uh, production or, uh, any equipment production? So it's like a state inside the state. And, uh, it was always strongly supported by the government, even after Chernobyl disaster. Yeah. Back in the 1980s, it was still, uh, very special energy industry with special conditions, special circumstances, different from oil, gas, coal, uh, and everything else. And um, in the beginning of the thousands, when uh, Russian economy started to recover after the transitional period, and uh, domestic energy demand started to grow, obviously, (coughs) nuclear came at the forefront as, again, um, like the renaissance of nuclear. Uh, it was already <laughs> nearly 20 years after Chernobyl catastrophe, so the memories were not so painful. And uh, Rosatom by that time has got an extremely ambitious uh, long-term program of development. They were planning like to commission two nuclear blocks per annum. Uh, And even Fukushima disaster actually didn't stop uh, these uh, gigantic plans, but uh, the economy did. Uh, So starting from 2010-2011, actually, a Russian economy was already slowing down. And if you look at the average GDP growth of the Russian Federation from 2011 until 2021, you will see that it was nearly zero. The economy was stagnant, actually. Uh, obviously, in this situation, energy demand is also not growing that fast. So, frankly, there was not much space for all these new nuclear blocks. And uh, in reality, the program was downgraded significantly. They were postponing uh, many uh, construction projects, and they were also some technical delays, which were not planned, but they were just happening. So, summing up, uh, the industry was successful in uh, getting uh, political support and financial support from the government in lobbying its interests, in protecting its uh, significant place uh, in the balance Yeah, and in the uh, Russian energy strategy. But it was not that successful in real expansion, real construction, uh, real performance. Similarly, with the overseas projects, Uh, Rosatom Overseas was uh, an extremely ambitious uh, subsidiary of Rosatom with lots of plans and negotiations around the world uh, with uh, many projects uh, ongoing simultaneously Um, but actually if you look at the end of the day on the number of the nuclear power plants really built during the last 20 years you will see that it's not that impressive Uh, and those built uh, many of them also have uh, cost overruns and uh, time delays so uh, the performance seems to be better uh, in uh, um, public performance rather than the real uh, deliverables. Uh, Nevertheless, I'm sure that uh, as long as possible, uh, the state will still support this industry because uh, though it's not really that um, economically efficient as it pretends to be uh, in Russia, but it's extremely important from the political and geopolitical point of view. So I hope I've addressed your question. And just a little
0: follow-up question, Tatjana. You know what was the position of Rosatom among the competition internationally? Because you know when you go to the website or or YouTube, the presentation that Rosatom has. What, what rosaton is doing abroad is impressive you know it's nice video good talks and everything but when you were speaking with the scholars and your colleagues what was the reality of understanding rosaton abroad before the the invasion you know because you know rosaton was doing some international projects on one hand but on the other hand some people said that presentation was like better than the reality so so how was it in 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 your academic or scholarly circles.
1: Yeah, that's the same point that I'm making that uh, uh, presentation better than reality. Actually, Rosato Morris sees uh, it managed to uh, build a very strong team. Yeah, there were really good and smart people working there, highly professional, uh, with very good uh, outreach skills. Um, so, they were good Sellers, yeah, and that's what they they, they were marketing uh, these uh, services, these projects. Uh, but then uh, the executors of the projects probably were less uh, successful, and um, I think uh, uh, there is a number of reasons for that. Uh, so first of all, uh, it's due to the simple fact that after Chernobyl, there was uh, 20 years when basically nothing was built and some of the competences were lost. Uh, it's the industry where you need this scale yeah, just to uh, uh, prevent uh, your competences from being destructed or lost. Um, And then the new generation, simply uh, the new generation of workers, because also during Chernobyl uh, catastrophe, a significant part of the uh, people who knew how to do it were simply lost. They died uh, trying to uh, fix uh, the consequences uh, of Chernobyl. Uh, So uh, there was this gap. Uh, There were uh, geopolitical problems because some of the projects they were like trying to proceed and then blocked because of the geopolitical considerations. Uh, They were uh, some obvious mistakes uh there were also cultural difficulties like in finland where actually rosatom didn't manage to find common language with the finnish counterparty. yeah so uh, many reasons why it didn't fly as well that mo- well as um rosatom overseas was promising uh but uh, still we can say that there was this expansion um and that partially it was successful, which is already not that bad. And Russia prevented its status of nuclear uh, energy exporter, Yeah, exporting the equipment, which was also not that simple. If you look at the international, at the global uh, nuclear industry, I mean, not many countries managed to do that.
0: Right. I have gone through many interviews with uh, Alexey Likachev, who is the boss of Rosatom. And, and you know, I, I have a little bit of mixed feelings about what sort of opportunities and threats are there for Rosatom in 2023, 2024. Because, uh, you know, people are aligning with the sanctions, with all that movement that we have. Also, you know, partially the Russian technology is connected to the military and the space program, and we see some failures and all that geopolitical dynamics have some impact on nuclear energy. We also have the big uh, dynamics of the climate change. So the renewables and, and green energies. So in that sort of web of problems and threats, where can you see Rosatom this and next year?
1: Uh, that's a really difficult question because, um, on the one hand, yes, Rosatom is under very strong pressure and uh, uh, it is uh, uh, not without reason regarded uh, as uh, potentially participating also in the military activities, dual purpose, uh, it's like inherited. Uh, but at the same time, you will not see Rosatom in the sanction list Rosatom itself, and uh, you will uh, probably be surprised to find out that Rosatom is still supplying nuclear fuel uh, to Many European countries to the US um, and to the other G7 countries, uh, which are imposing embargoes on crude oil and discussing, uh, you know, potential restrictions on LNG. So, I mean, nuclear fuel is quite different, but the dependency. I mean, people are mainly talking about how much Europe was dependent on Russian gas. Nobody is discussing how much the U.S. is dependent on Russian nuclear fuel. And the numbers are huge. It's above 30%. So it's comparable (laughs) to the European dependency on Russian gas. And therefore, Rosatom has these special conditions. It is treated in a special way. Nobody, uh, as there is no replacement for this fuel at the moment. Yeah, Um, the uh, West has to find some uh, appropriate ways uh, to deal with Rosatom. Uh, So in this respect, it has more favorable situation compared to, let's say, uh, Rosneft, for example. Uh, But at the same time, um, all nuclear projects, you know, they are very long term, they are very expensive, and they are very politically and geopolitically sensitive. So if uh, uh, the government of, of a country goes into agreement with Rosatom, it means not just building a power plant. Yeah, it means much more. It's a sort of geopolitical alignment. And for many countries, which would be potentially interested in getting uh, nuclear power plants because of their energy demand is booming and they have uh, energy poverty and their population needs this electricity, but they are uh, very cautious in getting. Anyhow, engaged uh, with Rosatom because they do not know what will be the geopolitical consequences and whether they will face uh, secondary sanctions one day. Not now, definitely, but maybe in five years. And the construction time for nuclear power plant is 10 years. So you need to think strategically before you go go into these projects. And this is uh, probably the main reason why it is now all stuck. And everybody is just observing, not making the first move. We will see how this whole geopolitical situation will evolve in the future. And uh, I suppose there could be some countries which will decide, okay, I will take a risk, I will will go into the joint project with Rosada because... uh, Actually, even before the war, Rosatom uh, was providing very favorable financial conditions to their clients. Like, we are paying for everything. Russian government is providing a loan uh, for everything. And then for, for 40 years, uh, you pay some fixed fee back Yeah, uh, it's extraordinary actually on the market. And I assume that now these financial conditions might be even more favorable because Russia is getting isolated and it needs such type of projects in order to expand its political influence. But uh, again, I'm not sure that in the next couple of years there will be any countries ready to take political risks of uh, doing business with Rosatom?
0: I can also confirm that by a case study in Hungary, where they are building the nuclear plan. And for my students and international audience, that's a very nice case to study because when you go to the official website, you can see those financial guarantees. It's, it's just on the sideline or domain document, but it's like three billions there, two billions there. Everything in dollars, of course. And, and this is in, this is that nobody can provide. Yeah. Because when you're dealing with other like South Korean companies, American companies or French, you, you have to pay for, for what you get because this is how it works. I mean, it's, it's, uh, maybe impossible to get that's, that's such conditions from French government. Or, or South Korean government. So this is very interesting case study, highly recommend for my students to go through. The last question dealing with the nuclear topic is the russian own nuclear energy security. What sort of stage is this area, this, uh, this uh, area of energy in Russia at the moment? Uh, how is the refurbishment of the nuclear plants or building new, brand new nuclear plants? How is Russia in this?
1: Again, it's rather difficult uh, to say. I mean, the official numbers and the official presentations of Rosatom are always claiming that they are very much uh, focused on safety and security and that they are providing all the maintenance and refurbishment needed and that everything is up to date. Uh, So the disclosures that they are making for the uh, International uh, Nuclear Agency and uh, so on, uh, they are looking quite convincing. Yeah, but uh, I cannot swear that that's uh, the reality that we have on the ground, especially now uh, during the war when actually the whole transparency of the Russian energy sector has decreased a lot. I mean, similarly to the transparency of the Russian economy, nobody knows for sure what exactly is happening there because uh, now you cannot trust any statistics, you cannot trust any numbers. You know, uh, there is no way to double check them. Yeah, that's the problem. But basically, well, I would assume that it is. It should be okay, as much as anything can be okay during the war. Yeah, speaking about security and safety.
0: Sure. Also, also this topic uh, it opens many doors, you know, because nuclear energy. We, we have examples from Fukushima, from Chernobyl, and from other that were not that much published. So this, this impacts the whole world because if you have the explosion of the gas plant or something, it's, it's mainly local. It's disaster, but it's, it's, it's local. But if there is a neglected Russian nuclear plant, which officially was portrayed as OK, but it wasn't OK, that's a serious global problem. So I think this is this is one of the implications of the war, unfortunately, for the whole global energy community, that we don't have that access to those data. That's, that's my humble opinion about yeah,
1: it. Yeah, and I would echo that. Um, it's just uh, it's two months uh, since uh, Prigozhin's um, unity. Yeah. And uh, the news were yesterday about the crash of his airplane. Um, actually, his route to Moscow uh, was lying close to several uh, nuclear uh, plants and objects. Yeah. So just imagine if there is uh, a military attack of uh, some group of bandits, actually, so armed people with unclear purposes and uh, uh, pretending that they are looking for fair revenge. Uh, whatever it means um if we are talking about nuclear states, we are expecting that there is social and political stability inside that there are not no uh, uh private armies uh, moving inside and conquering cities. It's no longer the case for Russia as you can see, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, let's touch a little bit uh, Igor Sechin's business. Uh, and there's huh. the Russian, Russian oil, our favorite. Uh, so just for my students, let's speak about the Rosnev as a company. So if we cut off the European oil supplies, how big is Rosnev as a company? And and how can we portray the Rosnev internationally so we can imagine the power of the Rosnev? Oh, uh, you know... <laughs>
1: Initially, in nineteen, in the end of nineteen nineties, in the beginning of two thousand, um, Rosneft was a minor, neglected company, which was consisting of the assets of the uh, assets under the state control, which nobody wanted to privatize. Four percent of Russian uh, total oil output, nearly nothing. Yeah, but Igor Sechen, uh, who took over, uh, who was actually as a representative of the state managing those uh, unwanted assets yeah, uh, during his work in the presidential administration, he was like supervising them. He started to accumulate uh, power and additional uh, assets uh, under this uh, umbrella. Yeah, the first uh, were the assets of Yucos which were transferred to Rosneft, and then there was a series of uh, um, mergers and acquisitions, mainly unfriendly, um, which allowed Sechin to accumulate uh, now nearly 50% of all Russian oil production. So it was an amazing journey from less than 5% to nearly 50% of all output, And uh, exports, so it's really um, the uh, state uh, flagship company, uh, which is, uh, and I mean, I'm not sure how the situation will evolve even in the nearest future. You can see that during the last couple of months, uh, there were very significant changes in the asset ownership in Russia And I assume that this process of nationalization or transfer of control has started already. It will not uh, avoid uh, the oil industry and there are all the preconditions to expect that uh, Rosneft will uh, see a further expansion of its assets under control.
0: How is the world with Rosnev? Rosneft? I'm speaking about, you know, we have those volumes of the Russian oil, which is exported from Russia to the world. And how can we imagine that, that quantity, that volume? How would be the world without Russian oil? So let's imagine that Russia is a closed country, can't export even one drop of oil, you know. That would be a significant problem oh. for the world, or how would it be?
1: Um if uh if it happens overnight I would say it will be the world of like uh, $200, 250 or 300 dollar per barrel oil yeah because it's a shock uh these uh um actually seven to eight million uh barrels per day of oil and petroleum products uh, that Russia is supplying it's impossible to replace uh quickly yeah there is simply no uh, there are no such reserves uh or you know strategic stocks uh in the market available to replace it another problem is that russia also doesn't have any place to store all these volumes yeah and um actually there were some similar fears back in 2022 when the war started. You remember the oil price has jumped significantly, but then people realize that actually the oil still keeps going. And if we are looking at the statistics of 2022, actually Russia hasn't decreased its export volumes. The destinations have changed, so Russian oil is no longer going to Europe, to the U.S., uh volumes going to uh OECD Asia countries have decreased significantly. Most of the oil ends up now in China, in India, in Turkey, in the Middle East. Uh, but nevertheless, the volumes are pretty the same. Yeah, so we didn't see yet any real constraint on the Russian volumes. If this constraint is imposed or happens accidentally, Uh, then it would be extremely painful for the the whole world, especially for the uh, emerging markets and for the developing economies, which are most vulnerable consumers, most sensitive to the price.
0: One question for my students, and and it's quite a tricky question. We were discussing how Russia exports oil and all those uh, dodgy sort of schemes and my students are interested if it's possible to track the origin of the oil internationally. So for instance, they were thinking India or China buys oil from Russia and then resell that oil internationally to some international company. And that company then sells the oil to Europe, to America or to different countries. So is it realistically possible to track the origin of the oil?
1: Well, uh, in a perfect world, definitely, yes, Uh, if uh, the initial, if the producer or the initial supplier is transparent and willing to disclose all the information. Yeah, but actually, right now, we have an absolutely opposite situation when Russian oil companies are doing everything to hide the origin of the oil. And I would say they are very smart and creative in finding the ways how to hide it. So, um. uh, You see um, like Kepler uh, and Bloomberg uh, and the other uh, companies, they are trying to track the tankers. They are trying to monitor from satellites what is happening. Uh, The tankers are switching off transponders. They are like going for transshipment in the night uh, in the middle of the sea. So uh, it uh, uh, it is a race and some of the uh, tankers are uh, getting tracked the others uh, succeeded in their hiding uh, so basically already now we do not have a clear um, picture of all the movements and of all, all the origin of oil the sanctions the price cap imposed by g7 uh, in december last year it was actually requiring uh, the supplier to provide all this information, and it was also required by the uh, uh, for the financial institutions and uh, insurance companies and shipping companies if they want to avoid price cap uh, uh, mechanism. Uh, but as you see, Russia uh, managed quite quickly to build up its own shadow fleet, which is not supposed to report to anybody. Uh, it uh, found uh, lots of counterparties in the developing countries, um, shipping companies, uh, yeah, which are not part of G7 club, uh, or ins- local insurance companies. I mean, who can control local Chinese insurance company? And, and uh, therefore, there is no implementation mechanism at the moment which would force all the stakeholders, all the parties involved in the oil supply to uh, disclose obligatory the origin of oil. So on one side, there is a strong will of the Russian companies to hide this origin. On the other side, there is no real strong implementation mechanism which would force everybody to disclose this origin. As a result, we do not know the origin.
0: There is also a case from Azerbaijan when uh, Russia supplies oil to Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan sells the oil. And I read a few articles that it wasn't always transparent which oil is basically sold, if it's Azeri oil or is it Russian oil. So, so that's also the international case. And as Tatiana said, you know, it's, it's quite complicated in some cases to, to go and to see the roots of the problem or some speculation or speculative capital, which is always in the oil business. So, so that's, that's uh, quite an issue also for research. Uh, I want to speak about one thing. Uh, Igor Sechin usually gives his most influential speech in Italy. In Verona, there is Verona Eurasian Economic Forum. And last year, he said, there is no single energy market anymore. There are no rules. And my question would be, who is basically setting up the rules when you have the oil energy market? I mean, the global one. Do we have any like regulatory body? that have some guidance or is it always, you know, OPEC versus some independent companies? How is this? Because this is quite interesting area for not only for my students, but also the international audience. You know, if I want to sell or buy oil, what should I follow?
1: So actually, it's more of a tradition. Yeah, The rules which evolved with the time uh, starting from the mid uh, 20th century uh, as uh, the uh, financial institutions and financial framework was evolving, uh, the uh, stock exchanges, yeah, the uh, and uh, the oil uh, spot markets, uh, where oil is traded, uh, the benchmarks which are used for this trading the financial brokers and financial institutions which are serving all these transactions, the insurance companies which are insuring them, the shipping companies which are delivering this oil. Uh, So uh, there is no single regulatory body, but I would say like uh, um, the... uh, London market or New York market or Dubai market, uh, uh, spot markets, uh, the regulators have a a strong word, uh, actually, in uh, how oil is traded, because these are the rules of these uh, uh, marketplaces uh, where it is, I mean, it's a small fraction of oil that is sold there, but the price uh, is uh, produced uh, on these marketplaces. The price which is then used uh, for all the physical transactions around the world. And with the physical transactions, again, for many decades, the the main buyers were Western companies, uh, and therefore, as the buyers, they had this luxury of, uh, of requesting certain uh, institutional framework, uh, certain transaction mechanisms, which would be acceptable and convenient for them. That's how this market evolved. And then the others were just joining these rules of the game, rules of commercial interaction. Uh, and it just happened. Historically, that for example, dollar was the main currency for all these transaction uh, transactions because uh, the major market was in the U.S. and because the pricing was happening in the New York Exchange. Yeah, um, it was not imposed or forced by anybody. It just happened. Uh, what Sitchin uh, was talking about in uh this Verona Forum uh, which if I'm not mistaken was taking place last year in Azerbaijan, actually <laughs> yeah uh, this is um the um, how do to say the desire actually of the Russian Federation first of all but there are several other countries which are also interested uh in this uh to um create an alternative system. Yeah. First of all, alternative marketplaces, alternative pricing, alternative financial, um, Procurement mechanisms, yeah, how to execute all these payments and transactions. Why? Because Russia has got under financial sanctions and can no longer enjoy the existing framework. It has to create an alternative framework together with Iran, together with Venezuela. Yeah, so there are several outsiders now which need badly to have their own system. And this uh, alternative system is also actually interesting, at least, uh, for the major um, consumers uh, in the developing countries, for China, for India, because it allows them uh, to get more beneficial uh, conditions they are, uh, to pay uh, for this oil in their currencies. And you can see now that Actually, RMB uh, payments for Russian oil are already reaching like 50% of all payments. Uh, India is uh, buying Russian oil, mainly uh, paying in rupees, which is extremely inconvenient for the Russian oil companies because then they do not know what to do with these rupees. Yeah, they, It's not uh, an easily convertible currency. Yeah, uh, It is all like stuck in India. Uh, and they are trying to find the goods they can buy in India using uh, these revenues. Uh, but it's uh, very good and very beneficial for India uh, itself. And uh, as a result, we see this like new evolving coalition and i assume that the brics uh, summit which is uh, ongoing right now yeah uh, it is also calling for this more active action of the developing countries and let's say non aligned countries yeah this movement of non alignment which india was leading uh, back in 20th century now it's getting back Uh, to the front stage, uh, like something uh, new and very attractive for the countries, for the rather poor countries uh, in Africa, in Southeast Asia. Uh, So they are trying to benefit, actually, from from this conflict between Russia and the West, and they do benefit from it. But frankly, uh, I'm not... uh, Convinced uh, by this statement of Sechen that uh, uh, the energy market is ruined, it's uh, and that there is no single energy market. The market is there, but Russia is getting excluded from the market. That's the problem for Russia.
0: Right. We also know that there is price cap on Russian oil, and uh, I was thinking, you know, that price cap is set up at certain dollars per barrel but what is the price of Russian oil when the Russia is profitable and when, you know, it's like the price is okay for Russia to sell. And if we can compare this with that price cap, because, you know, the price cap is quite theoretical, you know, it's like 50 or $60 or something like that. But many people, they have no idea if if the $50 is like Good price or or not a good price for Russia to sell the oil. So can we clarify a little bit that price for the Russian oil? Because you you were studying and and researching this for years, so you you probably know know, how is this developing.
1: Yeah, uh, look, uh, it's a bit artificial. So right now the price cap is at $60 per barrel. But talking about, uh, let's say, uh, uh, costs of Russia, yeah, so break even cost for Russia to produce and transport this oil to the border, let's say. Um, it is, uh, this number is always changing depending, first of all, on the taxation. Yeah, and taxation in Russia is being adjusted every quarter, actually, uh, depending on the rubble uh, exchange rate, which is jumping uh, very significantly in August in particular. So, all the numbers that I will tell you, they're very rough, Uh, it's an estimate, Uh, but um, it is something in the range between $30 and $40 per barrel, depending on all these factors. Uh, For example, um, back in 2020, when COVID started, and you remember, it was like a catastrophic situation for the oil exports, because suddenly the demand collapsed, and you remember there were negative uh, futures oil prices, so that was really very, very painful. Um For the first couple of weeks, the Russian energy ministry was saying like, okay, relax, we are uh, still uh, comfortable with, let's say, $45 per barrel, $40 per barrel, uh, but when the prices uh, crossed the threshold of $35 per barrel, It was immediately the moment when Russia went back to uh, the uh, dialogue with OPEC. So I think it is like uh, an experimental evidence of something around $35 per barrel. It is three years back. So now are uh, and the situation on uh, inside Russia and Russian economy has changed a lot, but I would say, well, maybe $30 per barrel, given that Russia can't evaluate rubble as much uh, as it wants now. yeah. Uh, and if you compare it with $60 per barrel uh, cap price, uh, it's a good margin.
0: So the price cap is like working, you know, like ironically for Russia. We can conclude in 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 this way: if 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 you want to sanction Russia, you you have to be a little bit smarter in this area. I think
1: it's uh, you know it's not uh, that much the question of the level of the price uh, cap uh, because it has partially destroyed. Um, so it has moved Russia away from the most profitable markets, that's for sure. Yeah. But uh, the uh, enforcement mechanism, it really doesn't seem good. Uh, during the last month, uh, the Russian uh, oil price has uh, exceeded basically everywhere the level of the price cap. It happened already, it is uh, in the reports, it is in the uh, numbers, uh, it is in the custom statistics of India, China, and so on, and uh, um, the enforcement mechanisms, they simply do not work. So that's the problem. So if uh, G7 countries would be able to uh, force all the actors on the market to follow these rules, probably we would have seen a different outcome, but they can't do it at the moment. And therefore, yeah, price cap is not working.
0: Let's turn to natural gas and uh, there are companies like Gazprom and Novatec. So let's start with Alexei Miller and and Gazprom. After Nord Stream and those incidents, and basically the natural gas flow to Europe was cut, and there is only a, pro- a small portion of gas going through Ukraine to the central and eastern europe at the moment that we have and also we have some uh, flows which go to turkey and and southern part of the europe so so this is basically a big limitation for russia because Russia was very optimistic that basically Western world joined when the Nord Stream 2nd was being was built. So it was like an international project and it was a, a big uh, enthusiasm about supplying uh, Russia with the new pipes. But this is all gone. And uh, Ukraine said that uh, they don't want to prolong the transport of Gazprom gas to Europe. So this will be, I assume, another limitation for Gazprom. Chinese are negotiating very hard uh, when it comes to gas price and all the conditions. It's not as, as pink as portrayed by, by some media. It's, it's a quite problematic area when, when you speak with real experts and people behind the scenes. So when we, when we put all this and we underline everything, what options does Russia have to export natural gas when we speak about the pipes, not LNG, but the pipes?
1: Uh, That's a a billion-dollar question, literally. Therefore, Um, you are here. Yeah, so look, um, nobody among my fellow colleagues believed uh, that uh, Gazprom uh, voluntarily would cut gas supplies to Europe because it was such a profitable and luxury market. And remember, it started well before the explosion of the North Streams. Uh, So, uh, shooting its own leg, yeah, no problem, Um, and uh, once it happened, I assume it will be nearly impossible to restore uh, the uh, pre-war levels of Russian uh, gas pipeline exports. So, as you correctly point out, uh, the Ukrainian transit is a very big question mark. In addition to uh, Ukrainian uh, route, uh, there is only Turk stream left. Uh, if we are talking about Westward uh, exports, uh, Turk stream is working at full capacity. Uh, there were these discussions uh, last year and beginning of this year uh, between Putin and Erdogan on the Turk gas hub. Yeah, um, and uh, we can see already from their comments that uh, they both understand it in a different way. Uh, and anyway, and none of them was mentioning any physical infrastructure, any new pipelines to be built. Yeah, so it's something, maybe swaps, maybe some trading, whatever it means. But physically, Russia cannot transport more gas uh, through Turkey than it is transporting right now. And I cannot imagine uh, any new pipeline being built as long as Russia is under the sanctions in this uh, part of the world. Uh, So, then uh, we have this uh, uh, power of Siberia 1 building up its own capacity to the full capacity of 38 BCM. Uh, We have all these discussions and negotiations about power of Siberia 2, which is still in limbo, despite all the efforts from the Russian side, which is really pushing very strongly Chinese to go into this agreement, China seems to be quite calm and skeptical, and they do not uh, want, I assume, to hurry up with this project. It will probably happen one day when China will need this additional gas, but uh, it can happen. Remember, the negotiations with Power of Siberia 1 took 10 years, so I wouldn't be surprised uh, if there will be a similar outcome with Power of Siberia 2 and then uh, the only uh, realistic alternative that russia has for the pipeline exports uh, it is uh, central asia yeah so you cannot go west uh, east is limited you go to the south yeah uh, and um actually this triple side uh, consortium triple side union Uh, which Putin called uh, to create uh, last December, uh, addressing Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Initially, these countries were very reluctant and even scared, I would say. Uh, Now they seem to slowly get into this uh, arrangement, because they are surprisingly facing severe gas deficits in their domestic markets. Uh, at the same time, they have export obligations to supply 10 bcm each uh, to China, and they have to fulfill these uh, obligations because it's very important uh, for them both from the economic and geopolitical point of view. But their domestic market uh, markets are then left without sufficient gas volumes, and Russia can fill this gap. So they are buying gas from they are arranging now to buy gas from Russia for their domestic markets. Of course, it's not a luxury European market, not at all, not in terms of volumes, not in terms of prices, but at least something, some monetization of the gas. Uh, Russia is also supplying gas to Azerbaijan, similar scheme. Azerbaijan is domestically consuming Russian gas and sending its own Azeri gas Uh, uh, to Europe uh, via Tanakh, Tab, and so on. Uh, And there is also a a really challenging project on the table uh, to uh, transport gas uh, through Azerbaijan to Iran and then through Iran uh, to the Gulf, yeah, and to build together with Iran either pipeline to India now, which they are discussing for the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years, something like that. I mean, Iran and India are in discussion. So potentially Russia could join this uh, idea or uh, building LNG plants uh, in the Gulf uh, on the Iranian territory jointly together with Iran and then export LNG. Seems a bit crazy from the economic point of view. Uh, But um, potentially some minor volumes could go there through different swap operations. But all in all, I would say I do not see, at least until the end of this decade, any significant uh, increase in the Russian pipeline gas exports compared to what we see today.
0: Do we have any numbers when you have all that pipe gas? What's the percentage that Russia needs for domestic like cons- consumption? Like, like so we can imagine you know what sort of volume goes to the export mm-hmm. and, and what what Russia actually needs?
1: It's very simple. Uh, uh, Before the war, Russia was always consuming two-thirds of gas and exporting
0: one-third. One-third, okay.
1: So basically, domestic market is more than sufficient for the functioning of the uh, gas industry, for the stability of the gas pipeline network. Um, It's different compared to oil.
0: And one question from my students. When you have all those pipelines and it's like, Web, you know, going from Russia to the West and and then continues. Can we use those pipelines for for anything else? Like some people, you know, thinking about hydrogen or some alternative fuels going through those pipelines. Is it realistically possible to do this or not?
1: Uh, it depends, first of all, on the age uh, and the quality of the pipelines. So uh, Gazprom itself was announcing that. The pipes in the North Stream are potentially applicable for hydrogen transportation or at least for the transportation of the mixture of methane and hydrogen. So they they were like the newest pipes with very uh, high quality insulation. Uh, some of the oldest ones probably would not fit it. Uh, but uh, this is a discussion which many countries in Europe have, like converting uh, traditional gas pipelines in the hydrogen pipes. Um, It is requiring additional research and testing. There are some challenges on the pipeline of metal fragility and so on. But theoretically, with some additional efforts uh, and some additional chemistry, uh, in some cases, it is possible.
0: Right. There is a place in Russia called Portovaya, near St. Petersburg. And this place, you know, was like unknown a few years ago, but now it's the most popular destination when people are looking for LNG and Russia for research, because we know that Porto Vaya is supplying at, at, and it is still supplying at the moment, European Union with the LNG. So, Novatec is in charge of LNG in Russia. We know that Gazprom is, you know, flirting with the idea of having also LNG, you know, terminals and all that uh, equipment. But I am interested in one question, and that's the ability of Novatec to compete internationally on LNG market. Let's assume that European Union will say we're not going to buy more LNG from Russia. What can Novatec do? And what sort of destination are there in the world for Russian LNG?
1: So, Novatec and Gazprom are competing uh, quite strongly since uh, probably 2013. Yeah, So, it's already a decade of this competition. And accidentally, it happened last year, or beginning of this year, uh, that Novatec started to win because of dramatic reduction in Gazprom's uh, pipeline exports. Uh, Right now, if you look at the numbers, actually, the volumes uh, that Gazprom is still exporting and the volumes that Novatec is exporting as LNG, they are comparable. And as Novatec is building up now uh, uh, Arctic LNG2, yeah, um, there will be more LNG uh, coming from it while Gazprom is not that successful as you've mentioned uh, neither in the pipeline uh, in the new pipeline development as we've just discussed uh, nor in uh, LNG uh, construction yeah, it has lots of plans but they never materialize uh, so uh, Novatec is becoming the new national uh, champion uh, in gas exports And uh, so far, LNG was not uh, under any uh, restrictions uh, in Europe. Uh, There was embargo imposed by the UK, Canada, and the US, which were not like big destinations for Russian LNG, but elsewhere it is uh, accepted. Um, There are, as as you mentioned, uh, some discussions... uh, inside the EU whether to ban uh, Russian LNG, Uh, but it seems that most of the expert politicians and commercial companies agree that in the next few years, it will create more damage to the EU rather than to Novatec, because LNG is flexible and it's possible to redirect it. And uh, it, it can go to Asia, it can go to Latin America, like Chile, yeah? it can go to India, Novatec is supplying all these destinations. And not necessarily going there physically, they can make swaps, swap operations with the other LNG producers. So in this respect, of course, Europe is the closest market with the highest margin um but uh okay it will not be uh like 15 days it will be 30 days uh or 60 days to reach uh, the other uh, point uh the margin will decrease but uh Navatec will still be able to sell this LNG uh and uh, my impression is that um, it is absolutely capable of finding markets for the LNG at least for the next 3-4 years until the next wave of uh, new lng uh, projects will come on stream uh, lng market is very cyclical yeah uh, you have a period of strong deficit then and everybody starts to invest then you have a lot of new lng projects coming simultaneously to the market there is a strong competition prices are going down nobody is investing yeah so right now we are in the deficit stage nobody was investing during covid uh, and they started to invest last year. It takes like five years. In five year time, there will be again this period of oversupply, most likely, and then it will be testing Novatec's ability to market its allergy But before that, I think uh, they can feel quite comfortable.
0: One of the questions for my students is, you know, Gazprom is associated with Kremlin, with uh, Vladimir Putin. Igor Sechin and all those groups, but Novatek has sort of independent company, like like sort of like uh, the description of the company. Can we explain the difference between Novatek and Gazprom from that point of view?
1: Well, in Gazprom, the state uh, holds 50% share, so it's state-controlled company, clearly. And there are representatives of the state on the board uh, of directors making decision. Uh, it is receiving like notifications from the state uh, to do this or to do that. Um, it is also regulated business because Gazprom is owner of the uh, unified gas supply system, all this transportation network. Uh, And as a natural monopoly, it has regulated tariffs uh, and so on. Uh, It it also has pipeline gas export monopoly. Yeah, And therefore, again, special treatment and special taxes, it is paying for the uh, uh, export uh, revenues. Novatec is different. It is a private company, privately owned. The state has no single share in uh, Novatec. Yeah, uh, in this respect, uh, yeah, it is independent Yeah, because there is no state involved and it has nothing to do with the pipeline infrastructure. Uh, similarly to Rosneft, to Lukoil, they are just using this pipeline system. That's the origin of like independent gas producers. It means like non-Gasprom gas producers who do not own the pipeline system. But at the same time, of course, if you look at the origin of these shareholders and the main representatives in the board, you can see uh, Timchenko there, you can see Akimov there. So uh, people from the elites, which are uh, regarded as a close circle of Putin But frankly, if you look at the most private businesses in Russia uh, these days, you will see very similar situation because that's the way how business is made in the country. And so, you know that.
0: Yeah, there is a joke, you know, like when you start a business in Russia and and people ask, you know, so who is your Siloviki? So that means someone who is protecting, you know, that you can do the business in, in Russia. Okay and let's let's go to the last section of our interview and that's re- renewable energy green energy in Russia. So we have all those big players Gazprom, Rosnev, Lukoil, even Novatek in in the fossil fuels. Who is a player in the green energy in Russia? And what's the stage at the moment? Because there are two implications I always mention to my students. The first one, the green energy in Russia is slightly not transparently, you know, projected, it's it's quite hard to find information who is doing what and why. And the second one is we don't have visible signs, like big projects of green energy in Russia in in the scale like we have in the Western Europe, America, or in Asia. I mean, there are some projects, but either they aren't published well, or people are are keeping them in sort of like, you know, oh, that's not important to, to publish articles about. So, so therefore, there is that information barrier. So if we go you know over this information barrier, what is the real situation with the green energy development in Russia?
1: So if you imagine a country which suddenly got locked and isolated with all its enormous fossil fuel reserves, which does not have access to the international financial markets and does not have access any longer to the international technologies uh, to develop renewables in particular. Yeah, and it's not only about solar PVs or uh, wind farms, but also about all the uh, management of the electricity system, all the digital tools, all the controllers and uh, uh, software solutions which are needed uh, to uh, integrate uh, this intermittent um, renewable output. Yeah. So what would you do? Obviously, you will simply burn your oil and gas and coal which you have no other outlet where to put and you will simply forget about all these renewables uh, because they are more expensive you cannot access the technologies you cannot attract money uh, uh, somebody uh, to invest there and you do not know how to manage it and you have all these lobbies of um, oil, gas, coal companies which are screaming that they've lost their markets. Now the domestic market is the only place where they can get at least some minor profits. So it is also a very sensitive social issue. What do you do with the coal miners in Kuzbass? Yeah? Those who are not mobilized to the war, they still need some jobs and they need salary. And if coal is not exported and uh, consumption domestically is re- replaced by renewables, what, could, what, what are they going to do? Yeah? So, uh, it's a very difficult question, and I would say, frankly, even before the war, renewable energy was marginal. It was really tiny. It was like 1-2%, if we are talking not about large hydro, but about new renewable technologies. yeah, And uh, it was very difficult for them to make their way. And they found, uh, and I think Anatoly Chubais was the leader of this very strange uh, framework of um, um, agreements uh, on capacity allocation. Sounds a bit strange for the renewables, which obviously they have no granted capacity. <laughs> yeah, uh, but anyway. They've created some very sophisticated regulatory scheme, which was allowing to attract money from the um, electricity uh, from the industrial electricity consumers in order to invest them into the renewable energy. And they've created uh, a number of solar and wind parks. Uh, there was Havell, uh, there was Novavin. Uh, they were, uh, I mean, probably the most active actors were Fortum. Um, uh, And then, yeah, so subsidiaries uh, of the Western companies, uh, which, as you know, uh, during this year, I mean, Fortum was basically nationalized, it has lost all its assets, so uh, I wouldn't expect any strong interest uh, from uh, the previous uh, owners in the development of renewables in Russia these days, yeah? And for the uh, new management, which is basically under control of Rosneft, yeah, I mean, why the hell would they develop renewables if they are looking for the markets uh, or what to do with their oil and gas? So there is this conflict of interests and there is uh, this lack of uh, um, incentives uh, to develop renewable energy. You know, it, it was also very important from the global perspective from the geopolitical perspective Russia was participating in uh COPs. Russia was uh like accepting Paris agreement Russia was making decarbonization commitments and announcing net zero yeah in that old world it was important in the world where Russia is at war with Ukraine Uh, Any of these statements are no longer making the difference in the perception, the global perception of the country. And therefore, it's not needed actually for the political leadership to keep saying that, yes, we are planning to develop renewable energy. Well, frankly, they still keep saying it that despite all the constraints, despite all the sanctions, we are still in line with our previous commitments. And by the way, we are also planning to develop hydrogen and to export this hydrogen, including to Europe. I mean, will Europe take this hydrogen? I doubt. Yeah, so for me, it looks more like fake statements, um and some uh, private interests of those who have already invested in several enterprises producing solar panels or uh building these uh wind parks but basically uh it is uh, the incentives are nearly uh, destroyed
0: as we know Russia has energy strategy at the moment it's uh, it's still 2023 that's the official document And my question would be not about the strategy itself for the international market, but for the Russian people. And the question would be, what is the energy security for Russian people? And what's the implication of the ongoing war? In other words, how affordable is energy for Russian businesses, for Russian households, and regular people who basically to to some extent, they suffer from all those sanctions. Some of them, they lost jobs because of international companies or Western companies left Russia. So so there are more dynamics going on inside Russia, but we don't have much information about those those outcomes of of like what's going on. For instance, the price for gas for electricity in Moscow, Saint Petersburg, I don't know in in other cities. You know, so so how is this? Situation in Russia at the moment.
1: Uh, so first of all, uh, the prices for gas, which is providing for more than fifty-three uh, percent of total primary energy consumption, has increased by eight percent this year, and another eight will be next year. Uh, after like twenty years of uh, uh, close to zero growth. So it's, it's, it is a dramatic change. It, it is significant. Uh, the um, price increase occurred uh, in mid-July, so people do not see it yet in the bill, but I assume that uh, closer to the end of the year, with the heating season, it will become much more felt. Um, The prices for uh, gasoline are also growing, and moreover, uh, there is a gasoline and diesel deficit in certain regions. And um, as the state, you know, in any mobilization economy, the state starts to manage uh, in a manual regime all these supplies, like Gosplan, and it always fails. Yeah, So these deficits uh, and disproportions, uh, they are absolutely inevitable under this system when the markets are not working, when they are just distributing uh, the volumes. So it's already felt, uh, as I said, and especially the agriculture sector is uh, complaining about that because if they they have like one week to plant something or to collect uh, the plants and they are failing to do it in time. Uh, Then uh, there are uh, problems with the electricity supplies uh, due to bad management, due to uh, insufficient investments in the previous year. So it is just the problems that uh, have accumulated. Similarly to Kazakhstan, to Uzbekistan, nothing specific has happened, but just uh, the proper maintenance was not in place. But right now there are quite strong protests in Dagestan, for example, because uh, in southern Russia, there are regions which are left without electricity. Some regions are left without uh, hot water supplies. Uh, so it's very local. It's not like countrywide, uh, but still it is creating additional tensions in the society. And I would expect as the, mm, the way of managing The country is moving more and more uh, like uh, to the Soviet model, uh, these uh, local disruptions, uh, blackouts, uh, or some other problems, uh, they will uh, accumulate. But at the same time, I wouldn't say that it is like changing the minds of the people or their perception of what is going on. Everybody is complaining, but Okay, what can we do? That's uh, the major instinct. And uh, just referring uh, to the energy strategy that you've mentioned, I mean, I I convince you, none of the uh, ordinary people using electricity has any idea of this strategy at all. It is very formal document, which is important only for the ministry and for the uh, narrow circle of energy companies. And it- they are actually extremely skeptical about it because it was written in a hurry. Um, then it was uh, they had to um, adjust it uh, during COVID, and it was approved uh, in July uh, 2020. When frankly nobody knew what is going on and what are the prospects of the global economy of the Russian economy, it was never, um, you know, mm, mm, uh, updated since then. And as you can imagine, during the last year, there were dramatic changes which should have been reflected in the strategic document. So I would say now most of people, even though from this narrow circle, have nearly forgotten about it. I think there will be some sort of an update because bureaucrats, they have to reproduce their formal documents. But again, uh, I suspect that it will be as far from the reality as the current version.
0: Tatiana, thank you very much for your time. It would be fantastic to speak with you maybe for two or three hours about Russian energy, a fascinating topic for research, for publishing some good articles. But again, thank you very much for your insightful thoughts and remarks about Russian energy. I I really appreciate that that you basically find time for higher thinker. I wish you all the best for your research, for the publications. I hope that you will reach like three, four hundred in the next years, which I wouldn't be surprised. And I also give you, I, I also wish you a good time with your colleagues. And this is very important to have a good background for research, so you can produce a very insightful pieces of papers and other publications. Again, thank you very much for being on Our Thinker.
1: Thank you so much, Martin, and thanks for great questions. I really enjoyed them. Thank you.
0: Thank you, and see you next time.